Amen. I we'll invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21 for our time studying God's Word together. I was looking through my notes last night and was reminded that we started in our study of First and Second Samuel in June of 2020. Uh, you may remember if you were here, we were gathering in the church gym. Uh, we were in the early days of the COVID pandemic and socially distancing and had spread out there in the gym. It was a Father's Day, uh, that first Sunday that we were studying First and Second Samuel. And now, uh, two years later, uh, we're still dealing with COVID and, and other things, but uh, we are drawing near our end of our study of this time in God's Word together. Uh, we come now to 2 Samuel 21 to really a, a different section of our study. Uh, we've been walking through these books that for the most part have been chronological, walking through the history of Israel, the history of Israel's first king Saul and then second king David. And that's brought us up to this point where we come to the last few chapters of 2 Samuel uh, that many refer to just as sort of an appendix. This is a a collection of narratives. These don't necessarily follow in a chronological order, but we need to be careful that we don't view that as just sporadic, that they're here for a purpose. Uh, they're divinely inspired. And I think what the, the narrator of First and Second Samuel has done is he's, he's given us these chapters to really remind us of this, this picture we have of David's rule and reign, of his shortcomings and of God's sovereignty. And then when you go to 1 Kings, you pick back up on the chronological order through those last years of David. And so, for the purposes of our study, uh, we're going to continue into 1 Kings, just those first two chapters, uh, so that we can study through the, the death of King Saul. And then what's coming next after that is, Lord willing, we'll start a study of the Gospel of Luke. And so, uh, that's the next few years for you, in case you're wondering. Uh, but for today... Uh, we are here at 2 Samuel 21, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And out of reverence for God's Word, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, as I read this passage for us. Again, just as a reminder, we, we stand because this is the holy, inspired Word of God. And it's humbling to consider that this is the Word that is being proclaimed today by brothers and sisters in Ukraine who have gathered as missiles and bombs have been going off around them. It is the same word that's been preserved through the history of wars and rumors of wars. It is the word that God has used around the world already this morning. And I trust he'll use it today. And this is what that word says. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said... There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, 
It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, well, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between Jonathan and David, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons, Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, and she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite, and gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Gebesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshon, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, and the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. If you will, pray with me. Father, this passage is a difficult one. It's one that's filled with death and suffering. And yet, Lord, it is part of your word given to us that we might learn, that we might be encouraged, that we might have hope. So give us hope today and help us to see how this passage, how all passages point us to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned just a couple of weeks ago that one of the passages that I come to often in my study of God's Word, particularly in my study of the Old Testament, is what Paul writes in Romans 15.4. There he writes this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It's important for us to remember that passage when we come to passages like this one because it's easy for us to look at 2 Samuel 21 verses 1 through 14 and think that there's no encouragement to be found here. I mean, this doesn't seem like a very hopeful passage. 
It's a passage that begins with a famine. I was reading just this week about the the history of famines. And one study, which only looked at the years 1860 through more recent years, a, a small percentage of time when you consider all of history, but just during that time since 1860, it was calculated that 128 million people have died from famines throughout the world. That many of the famines that we're able to look back on historically last for one to two years in regions and countries, and many times they wipe out up to a third of the population. And we know in Second Samuel, especially as we get towards the end and towards the census that David orders, that at this time, around this time in Israel's history, there's over one million men. You add to that the women and the children. You have millions here. And if this famine went on for three years, then chances are hundreds of thousands of people died during this three-year period. It was a time of immense suffering. And it's not the only suffering we find in this passage because as we continue on, we a reminder of the suffering of the Gibeonites. Now we know about the Gibeonites from uh, Joshua chapter 9. We'll, we'll look at that in our study. We, we don't know of this particular instance outside of 2 Samuel 21 where Saul is responsible for trying to annihilate the Gibeonites. And so there was much suffering there. And now we find suffering continues as a result of Saul's sin because in order to atone for Saul's sin... Seven of his descendants, referred to as his sons, are put to death. And then, to make matters more intense and give us a more vivid picture of suffering, we have the mother of two of these boys who just grieves over their dead bodies. It's a passage that begins with three years of famine and death, and it's a passage that ends with a funeral. And so the challenge is, how do we find hope in this passage? A passage so filled with suffering. Well, that's the challenge this morning. And it's one I want us to attempt to walk through by considering that God has purpose for suffering. And that God uses suffering. And so we'll begin there with the first point in your notes. We're reminded here that God is sovereign over our suffering. God is sovereign over it. The narrator makes it clear that God was sovereign over the suffering of the people in this passage. That this famine that's been going on for three years, this famine that's cost the lives of so many, this famine leads David to cry out to the Lord. Why would David do this? I believe it's because David understood that, that God was sovereign David understood that, that, that he, as the king, did not have the power to stop a famine. And David understood that this was outside of his control and anyone's control, that this was in the hands of a sovereign God. And so he, he turns to God in prayer. He, he pleads with God and notice God's response. God does not say to David, Well, David, I'm as surprised by this famine as you are. <laughs> you know, David, I, I, I'm so sorry that this is happening. I had no idea it was coming. I don't know what to do. That this famine has not caught God off guard. In fact, how does God respond to David? God responds to David by saying, in essence, that he's sovereign over this and that this famine is a result of Saul's sin. Saul's sin has caused this famine 
But God is sovereign over it. And David quickly understands when God points this out, that this is because of the sin of Saul, that that's the root cause to what's taking place, that that's the reason for this suffering. He, he immediately understands what it is that God is speaking of. He's speaking of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Now you have to go back to Joshua chapter 9 to get a, a context here, but I'll, I'll give you just a brief summary. When God's people came into the promised land, God told them that they would be wiping out all these pagan people that were in the promised land. God had given it to them. They were to annihilate and, and wipe out and bring judgment on these pagan people. And so as they do that, as they go through Jericho and other territories, news begins to spread to these pagan people of what's taking place. And when it spreads to the Gibeonites who were inhabitants of Canaan, they came up with a scheme to save their lives. And that scheme is that they would, they would dress themselves in such a way to make it look like they had journeyed from a far off place that they would initiate with the Israelites, that they would come to them and say, well, we're not inhabitants of the land. We're sojourners. We've traveled here in order to make a treaty with them so that they would not be wiped out. And so the Gibeonites do this. And Joshua and the people of Israel, the scripture tells us they don't consult the Lord. They made a rash decision. They made a vow to the Gibeonites. In the name of the Lord, they cut a covenant with them. They made a covenant promise in God's name that they would not annihilate them and wipe them out and bring harm to them. And they swore that oath, the scripture tells us in Joshua 9, by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then they find out they've been deceived. But the oath had been sworn in God's name, and they honored that oath. That is, up until the days of Saul. And then Saul becomes king, and the scripture here tells us, records for us here in this place, that Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, he violates this oath, he violates this covenant that was made in the name of the Lord, and he goes and he wipes out, or attempts to wipe out, the Gibeonite people. And now God has brought harsh judgment because of this. Now, you might look at this and say, well, what's the big deal here? Because when you, you look at history and you look at what was taking place, when God's people were coming to the land of the promise, the Gibeonites would have been wiped out anyways. Had things just followed along the order that they were said, uh, God's people would have come through, they would have encountered the Gibeonites, they would have wiped them out. Had it not been for the Gibeonites' deception, they would have already been dealt with in this way. So why is it such a big deal that Saul would then later go and he would try to wipe out the Gibeonites? Well, it's a big deal because they had made a covenant oath in the name of the Lord. And we've talked about this before. A covenant oath in the name of the Lord. The way that was done in these ancient times is they would, they would take an animal and they would sacrifice that animal. They would cut that animal into pieces. They would place the pieces of that animal on two sides of a path. And then the two parties involved in this covenant would walk together through the, the dead bodies of this animal. And as they were doing that, this is what they were communicating. If I violate this covenant... If I go back on my word against you, may it be so done to me and my descendants as what's been done to this animal. May I be cut in pieces. May my children be cut in pieces if I violate my word to you. And that, that's a serious oath, isn't it? We live in a day of handshakes and 
litigation and contracts and loopholes and getting out of contracts. That this, though, this, this was a covenant that was sealed in the name of the Lord. Saul had violated this covenant. Saul had broken the vow, broken the promise. He did not keep his word. But God did. And because God is the covenant keeper, God did exactly what God covenanted with them to do. He brought this judgment now on the people of Israel. This judgment will now fall on them through this famine. And so David seeks to atone for this and atone for Saul's sin. Now you notice in the passage that when he's made aware of this sin and what's taking place, he doesn't ask God what he's to do. There's... There's speculation here. We, we don't know and we can't put our, our finger on exactly the order of events and what is it that, that God really desires for David to do here and what does David just go out on his own and do. But, but David here, he, he goes to the Gibeonites and he says to them what I think he should have said to God, how can I make this right? And you notice what they say to him. They say, we, we, we don't want money. And we personally, we the Gibeonites, we, we can't just... Take lives to make this right. No, David, you've got to make this right. And in order for you to make this right, then you need to bring us seven descendants of Saul that we might then hang them. That phrase in the Hebrew, hang them, it indicates they wanted to impale them, that they wanted to crucify them. And so David gathers seven men who were descendants of Saul and he hands him to the Gibeonites and they are put to death. It's a horrible scene. And it's one that should sober us. And I believe that perhaps the reason that this scene is included at the end of 2 Samuel in this collection of narratives, the reason that the blood and gore of this is put before us is that we might consider the true cost of sin and what it truly means for atonement to take place. I'll read to you just from one commentator I read who said it better than I can say it. He said this, No one can evade the raw horror of this scene. Readers should be aghast. The text says atonement is horrible and it's gory. Atonement is never nice but always gruesome. We need to see this for we easily fall into the trap of regarding atonement as merely a doctrine, a concept, an abstraction to be explained, a bit of the- a theology to be analyzed. Or a little better, we view it as a moving story to be replayed during Passion Week. But we should know better. Surely the Israelite worshiper realized when he towed a young bull to the tabernacle and had to slit its throat, skin it, cut it in pieces, and wash the insides and legs. It was a mess and it was gory. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must be aware of becoming too refined and longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps Gibeah can shock us back into the truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly mess. And the stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. We've grown so accustomed to speaking of the blood of Christ and singing of the blood of Christ that I fear sometimes we don't consider what it is that Jesus 
bled and died for us, that he atoned for our sin. We've gone so accustomed to speaking of the crucifixion that I, I fear that we've forgotten that the crucifixion and its necessity was there because of our sin and that sin must be atoned for. I, I fear that the reason that so often we handle sin so casually is because we've forgotten what sin cost Christ on the cross and what atonement truly entails. And if nothing else, we're reminded from 2 Samuel 21 of just the, the vividness, that the goriness of atonement, what it took in an attempt to atone for the sin of Saul. It's a gory, sobering scene. It's one that we have to wrestle with. It's filled with suffering. And yet as those who believe in the Word of God and what God's Word teaches, what God says of Himself, we, we have to trust that God is sovereign over all of this. And if He is sovereign over all of this, then He has purpose for this. And I believe one of the purposes is this. Point two. That suffering should grieve us and drive us to cry out to God. It grieves us and drives us to cry out to God. We, we've already seen that the suffering here, it, it led David, King David, to cry out to God and to ask God what he, he should do and, and why this suffering was taking place. But then we have a picture of how this suffering leads another to grieve and to mourn and to be overwhelmed. In verse 10 we read about Rizpah grieving over her sons. She was the mother of two of Saul's sons. Armoni and Mephibosheth. This Mephibosheth was not the same Mephibosheth as Jonathan's son Mephibosheth, which is made clear in the text. This Mephibosheth was the brother of Jonathan, which can put the pieces together there. Probably is why Jonathan named his son Mephibosheth. He was naming him after his own brother, it's likely. It's that brother and another brother of Jonathan who are put to death here, these sons of Rizpah. They're hanged on a tree. And we have this gruesome, sobering scene where then the, the, the mother of two of these boys, she, she comes and she lays out a, a blanket, a sackcloth, and she just mourns and grieves and cries out over the bodies of her dead sons and these other sons of Saul. She watches over their bodies. The Scripture says by day that the birds would stay away from them. She's driving Away the birds from the bodies at night. She does the same thing with the beasts of the field. And this goes on and on. We have no idea for how long. But it seems to indicate it's a matter of days. And, and I don't think there's much more for us to note there. It's, it's just a grieving, sobering picture. Of how this mother responds to the death of her sons. She grieves. And friends, I, I believe that. One of the points we're to gather here is that, that, that that's what suffering should lead us to do. That we, we should grieve suffering. There's no shortage of suffering around us today. If you have watched as I have the, the plight of the Ukrainian people, you've seen the images. I watched this week a father in tears as he put his wife and his children on a train not knowing if he'd ever see them Again, as he stayed behind to, to fight in a war. I watched or read the story of a young soldier who was there on 
a border city where there was a bridge and they had rigged this bridge with explosives so that the Russians could not bring their supplies and their troops over it and the detonator did not work and so this young soldier went and he manually detonated and blew up this bridge. Before he did, he told his friends goodbye and he gave his life to save others. I listened to the report just yesterday from an American who oversees orphanages in Ukraine. There are hundreds of thousands of orphans and there will be many more now. And this American recounted how many of the orphanages are filled with children who are disabled or have Down syndrome. Their parents abandon them. This orphanage cares for them. They're able to place almost 80% of them in adoptions. And now these orphanages, although marked and visibly clear that that's what they were, they're places of refuge that should not be touched. They were being bombed and bombarded. And these children who had once been abandoned who were disabled, who could not flee and could not run, are now dead. And there are hundreds of stories like that that have come out just in the last few days. There are hundreds more that will come out in the days to come. There's immense suffering taking place in our world today, and it should grieve us. And then we have suffering in our own church. These weeks have been filled with phone calls and text messages and conversations about sicknesses, some that you know of, some that you don't know of, and people who are grieving and suffering. And their suffering should grieve us. And I fear that my response and your response Perhaps you, I know for me so often, is when people suffer, when the world suffers, we we want to immediately fix it. We want to do something. And so we talk about it, and we share about it, and we try to do things. We we want to do, we want to fix, but we, we need to leave room just to be quiet and to be sad. We need to leave room to grieve. And friends, there's, there's no expiration point on that. We need to let people grieve. We, we don't need to fix it. We don't need to buy into this health and wealth lie that says, turn that frown upside down, that, that, that by being sad and grieving, we're, we're giving some type of power to our suffering. That's complete and utter nonsense. God's people throughout history, God's people in 2 Samuel 21, God's people today, when we face suffering, we are called to grieve. And to mourn. It's okay to be sad. And it's okay to be quiet. When we suffer, we should grieve. And we should grieve together. And in our grief, we should cry out to God. I don't know why God allows the suffering that He allows. I trust that he has a plan for my suffering and yours. I I don't have all the answers. And I don't know all the reasons. I wrestle with God more over personal suffering and the suffering in your lives. I wrestle with him more over that than anything else. It's hard. It's a hard truth. We should not skim over suffering in the Scripture. 
We should wrestle with it. And I haven't figured it all out. And I don't know that this side of eternity that there's much figuring out to do other than recognizing that God is sovereign over it and He will indeed use it for His glory in ways that I cannot and you cannot fully comprehend. And there's something unique that God does in the midst of our pain and suffering. It is unique to anything else that we experience. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in a book called The Problem of Pain. He, he suffered immensely in his own personal life. He, he wrestled with these very things. And, and this is one of the things he said that comes back to me often. Lewis said, we cannot, or excuse me, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No one wants to be on the receiving end of that megaphone. We we don't want it. But that's where we find ourselves at times. That's where some of you have been. That is where some of you are today. And that's where many of us will be one day soon. Suffering. And watching those we love suffer. And so in that moment, we we have to make a choice. That in our suffering, will will we run to God or will we run away from God? It seems we do one or the other. We, We don't stand still in suffering. And I want to encourage you this morning, as we look to this word together, as we consider the whole counsel of God's word, I want to encourage you, as hard as it is at times to do, that in our suffering, we're to go to God and to cry out to Him. We're encouraged to run to Him. Which brings us to that third point there. Point three, God responds to the cries of His people. We come to the end of this passage and we see the seven descendants of Saul are killed and a mother grieves. And David hears of her grief and so he has the bodies of these men buried along with the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And the passage ends with this. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And so God heard David's plea. And God responded to his plea. The indication here would be the famine ceased and Saul's sin was atoned for, at least in this situation with the Gibeonites. But as we continue in God's word, we know that all famines did not cease, that all sin was not atoned for, that that would take much more than the seven sons of Saul hanging on a tree. That for the sin of the world to be atoned for, God's Son, His only Son, truly man and truly God, it would be Him who would hang on the tree. And He would die in our place. So how does that then bring us back to this point that God responds to the cries of His people? What brings us back because of this, friend. The only hope you and I have today and the only way in which our cries can be heard before a holy God is through Jesus Christ. 
that, that Christ has gone before us, that, that He is our brother and He is our advocate, that, that He intercedes for us. And so that's why He Himself says to us, Come to Me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. That's why He uniquely can say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, because He is the guarantee of our comfort. And He's the guarantee of our hope. And it's because of Jesus that we can hold firmly to the Word of God, words like 1 John 5 that tell us this, this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we've asked of Him. We are to come to God in the name of Jesus according to His will. He hears our pleas, and He answers them. And Philippians 4, we're reminded to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about, everything, about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're called to come before God to make our requests known. And the promise there is not that everything we ask for will happen in the timing and in the way that we ask. The promise there is that God will give us a peace that surpasses all understanding, that he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that's, friend, that's how we need to pray for one another as we suffer. That God would guard our hearts and our minds. And that he would give a peace that only he can give. That we would trust that the Lord is at hand. That whatever happens in Ukraine doesn't have the final word. That whatever happens in the hospital doesn't have the final word. That whatever happens in my health or in your health or the health of the loved ones we have, that that's not the final word. That Christ and Christ alone has the final word. And that final word is that there is a day coming where He makes all things new. That those who grieve and mourn are finally and fully comforted. That Christ and Christ alone can do that. He is our guarantee that God hears us and that God responds to us. And so we are called to cry out to Him. And so that's our invitation today. It is to let our requests be made known to God. And so I want to invite you today during this time of response to pray. We will sing as we do. We will worship as we do, but I, I want us to first take a moment to pray. A moment to cry out to God. I've already mentioned a number of concerns this morning, and there are those that you uniquely know about that I don't even know about. And so I just want us to take a moment right now, just where you are, where I am, just a moment to be silent, to be still, a moment to pray. And to make our request known to God. And so we're just going to take a moment right now for all of us to have opportunity to pray. And then I'll pray for us. And then we'll worship and sing together. And so if you would, bow your heads and pray with me.
Father, I thank you that you invite us to make our request, to let them be known. You know all things, but you invite us to let our requests be made known. You invite us to plead with you, to pray to you, to come before you. And not only do you make that invitation, but you guarantee our access through your son, Jesus. Your son, whose blood was shed for us, who died in our place that we might have life. You invite us to come to you through Christ, to repent of our sin, to trust in Jesus. You seal us until the day of redemption with the promised Holy Spirit. And Lord, you tell us in your word that even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. You tell us when we're not sure the words to say, you remind us we, we have an advocate, Christ Jesus, who pleads on our behalf before your throne. And so, Lord, I pray in a day when so many of us, we, we want to fix things, we want to do things, and there's certainly a place for that. I pray that you'd also help us just to be still and to wait on you and to trust in you, to, to be sad and to grieve. But Lord, I pray you remind us we don't grieve like those who have no hope because our hope is in Christ and it's in the resurrection. And our hope is in the day you make all things new. But Lord, if we don't have our proper response to the gospel, if we haven't truly repented and trusted in Jesus, then today we have no hope. And so I pray today for those here today, if there's someone here who's yet to, to trust in Christ, to, to truly trust in Christ and turn from their sin and repent, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are mourning and who are grieving that you would give a peace that surpasses all understanding. And I pray that you would remind us of the hope we have in Christ. And it's in that hope that we come before you now that we worship you now it's in christ's name that we pray amen My church guest i want to invite you now to respond to god's word if you'll stand together as we sing i will glory in my redeemer i'll be available to counsel with you to pray with you as we sing